You're listening to Half Stack Highlights, a blogcast dedicated to showcasing the latest in indie talent, business, and creative opportunities for the dreamer in you. We bring you intimate conversations with up-and-comers, entrepreneurs, and fellow dreamers alike, and we're based right here in Chicago. Hi everyone, Jen Lazan here with HalfStackMag.com. Thanks for listening to Half Stack Highlights. In today's episode, I had the opportunity to speak with an amazing Latina entrepreneur who's truly a role model for every budding businesswoman and young girl out there with big dreams. Tina Aldatz is the founder and the mastermind behind Foot Pedals, those amazing little cushions you put in your stilettos to keep the foot pain at bay. She took some time post-holidays to talk with me about her new book, From Stilettos to the Stock Exchange, which is a combo life story slash business education book that's sure to empower many. We talked about how she overcame her fear of sharing her less-than-pristine past, her journey in the fashion world, and what her plans are for her newest company, Savvy Travelers. Keep listening for more. Can you share a little bit about yourself, your journey, and what led you to what you're doing today? Yeah, Um well, I'm a multimillionaire. I'm a self-made female multimillionaire. And the reason why I'm saying that is because if you think about what people talk about the 2%, top 2 percentile in the world, in order mm-hmm. to qualify as being a high-income earner, you have to make over $250,000 a year. So I, I do that. But what sets me apart from everyone else in that 2% and what's really alarming is that 2% becomes much smaller when you, become, when you say that you're self-made, meaning yeah. I, didn't go, I didn't have anything handed to me. I didn't get an inheritance. I didn't have help from parents or anything. Then secondly, um, being a female, and then third, being Latina, the mm-hmm. 2% becomes so minute there isn't even you know it's a, a, a percent maybe one tenth of one percent yeah in that you know arena in the world so that to me um when i kind of break it down and say what led me to my current endeavors were really by default i'm a survivor i am mm-hmm. um a very hard worker and I ended up growing up in a community that was aspirational. And I think that by growing up in a place like Orange County, California, I was exposed to an environment. Had it not been for a terrible accident that happened to me when I was a child at nine years old, I was burned severely on my feet mm-hmm. at the beach, ran through hot coals. It ended me up at UC Irvine's burn center in 1978, which was one of the only burn centers in the world at that time. Wow. And having to be at the burn center so often, we literally had to move to Orange County. So I started fourth grade on crutches, you know, as, and my entire summer I was in, you know, in and out of the hospital. But I kid you not, one of the first days of school, this kid drove up in a limo. And I was like, what the heck is going on here? This is, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I just never never knew that that could even happen. I didn't happen, know kids yeah. could ride in limos, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> yep. so 
I, I think that was a that was a big um, moment of clarity that I knew that if that kid could do it, and for some reason I just had my mind set, you know what, I'm going to get that someday. And yeah. having that driving force, you know, and and um, you know, I didn't have a traditional upbringing. I didn't. I I grew up with um, a, ha- a white mother and Hispanic father. I'm, I'm half Mexican, mm-hmm. and they had a, a really tumultuous. Um, marriage, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, domestic mm-hmm. violence, and that led us to have to live into in a shelter for battered yeah. women, and then eventually having to live on government food stamps, welfare, mm-hmm. and my mother became more of an addict, and we, I just had to emancipate but by the time I was 15 years old, and then work really hard to get my brothers and sisters out of the situation as well. So I'm the eldest of six now, and that was my driving force. I think it's interesting, though, that you touch on your driving force as your younger siblings. I feel that a lot of people in, and I'll say it this way, our situation, because I grew up in a really similar situation, and I, I didn't emancipate at 15. I was 17 when I when I left home. But my younger brother was that, it was, I knew he was looking up to me, and it was mm-hmm. up to me to make sure that he didn't screw up his life so I couldn't screw up my life. Um, yeah. And it's just like, it's almost like it, it puts a little bit of pressure on you, but I feel like at that age, that pressure, it just it kind of keeps you, not necessarily on the straight and narrow, but it keeps you it keeps you motivated and going in that right direction to follow your goals so that you can bring them and remove them from that, from that situation. And it looks like that's what you did. So you say yeah. that that main passion of yours is fashion. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about? Oh, it was like, for sure, my mom and dad were very, very gorgeous people. And imagine in the 60s, he was like a hardcore pachuco, you know, low rider guy. And then my mom was this tall, blonde you know, really like flamboyant, wearing glittery clothes and dyed her hair pink. And she was a, a cosmetologist, so she was, you know, doing hair, those tall yeah. beehives. And they were just spectacular. So um, I, I think I just came right out of the womb as a diva. I was like, <laughs> you know, doing fashion shows every night when I was five years old with my nightgowns. And my mom always did our hair fabulous and nails and yeah, just very meticulous. It, we we had a lot of fun with that, and we were they were kind of creative in the arena. We were allowed to dye our hair however we wanted. We could do whatever we wanted, cut it. We, there was never any restrictions on those things. Like she's like, okay, you want a mohawk? Sure, go ahead. Let's do it. Let's figure it out. So it didn't really, you know. I think it was just kind of cool to have yeah. that um, experimental environment. But yeah, I had to work somewhere. My first job was super embarrassing. I hated it at Wienerschnitzel, and then the second job was at Albertson's grocery store, and I could not push those carts. So then I finally got a car, and I worked at the mall at Victoria's Secret, and I loved it. I loved it so much. I had the best time. I worked my way up in the ranks to a management position at South Coast Plaza, and then I finally transferred to New York City, which I knew was the fashion capital of the world, and I had to get there. And they agreed to transfer me, and I worked at their number one flagship store on 57th and Madison. And I'm talking about working with all the supermodels, press, I mean, movie stars coming and going. You know, it was just, 
it was an unbelievable experience and so fun to be on the front lines, and I learned so much. Yeah. And then right after that, I got um, recruited to BCBG Max Azria. And my forte was really merchandising, meaning I was an yeah. expert at building, like, in-store shops, merchandising them, um, knowing how the assortments are supposed to look as per the designer's um, mm-hmm. inspiration. So, you know, I kind of took that under my wing, and I just went out and, and really I had this amazing job as a merchandising director. And I got to travel the world, and I met my very best friend working there, and we had to travel. Max Azria told us to take the collection global, and we're like, yeah. okay, next thing we're on a plane to London and meeting with all these, like, higher-ups and, you know, just living an amazing fashion. If you think the, the Devil Wears Prada is just a movie, yeah. no. It was no. totally my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't even enjoy watching it because I felt like I was at work, you know. <laughs> so that, that really, you know, made me um, – very educated and experienced, and I became specialized in a certain arena, meaning merchandising. Retail yeah. merchandising has been my forte. I felt like it was almost like a calling. Yeah. Um, so that led me later to figure out how to uh, create a product that would fit in the retail world and know how to merchandise it and know how to actually get it, not only into buyer's hands, but make the consumer buy it and yeah have the brand grow and grow and grow because I learned from, I mean, think about the companies that I worked for. They're like global, the biggest companies that are all about a brand, Victoria's Secret and BCBG alone. I got the education of a lifetime there. Absolutely. And when you started BCBG, it was just like a growing brand. So it's almost like you were there to grow with it and develop with it, right? Yeah. It was was really, it was small and it was just starting to take off and it was just so cool. As a matter of fact, I remember Charlize Theron was one of our very first models. I remember um, helping Jennifer Lopez get dressed in our showroom and it was just like (laughs) really cool. That's awesome. So you grew, you know, into this opportunity, you know, and and eventually after BCBG, you know, it was, it seems like you finished that, you know, set of your life at a point where the whole internet bubble thing was, you know, really taking off, but also at that tail end of that that time frame. Um, You mentioned in your book, which I'm going to have you talking about in a little bit, Okay. Um, you mentioned working for an online retailer once you left BCBG because you were trying to grow and you felt that you had plateaued at the company. Yeah. Um, so what was your journey like going from, you know, being in this spectacular position and this role where you can do amazing things? And I know part of it was, you know, BCBG had gone public, right? They had started bringing uh, No, now. they were just really, really big, and they had gone global. Okay, and gotcha. They're still privately owned, but it was just, um, it was like, you know, infrastructure started to happen. So yeah. Max needed more people to be in charge, and so there was bosses suddenly when we used to just walk right up to Max and say, well, you know, we want to do this, and he'd be like, okay, yeah. whatever yeah. you want, you know. So then we all of a sudden had all these rules, and I don't know, I'm just not a rule a rule person, it's hard for me, I think, yeah. you know, <laughs> a rebel without a cause. Yes, exactly, and it's always those types of people, though, that really, you take it on your own. It's not that you have an issue with authority, it's just a matter of, you're you almost feel creatively stifled when you have right. rules. Right, right. It's, it's a good thing sometimes, but it's also a bad thing, and you got to know when 
to turn it on and when to turn it off because yep. you can literally shoot yourself in the foot, you know, which yeah. <laughs> um, so we're going from that transition when I left BCBG, yeah, I kind of felt like I had tapped out and I mean maxed out and so I decided I was gonna take a risk. Everybody was buzzing about this, you know, internet and I like being you know, whatever's hot, kinda of like see what's going on and get yeah. out there. Um so I took a really big risk and um that was going to work for an internet company and I was so impressed with this girl that had raised, you know, two million dollars in working capital. I was just like, wow, she has an MBA I can't believe it. I'm just going to work with this chick. I'm going to learn so much, and we're going to kill it. Anyway, she was a total idiot and spent like $2,000 on office chairs. Like, she just didn't get it. So a big wake-up call. I was like, okay, um, you know, I guess an MBA doesn't account for much if you don't actually know how to run a company or you have real-life experience. So that's, you know... Um, something to really think about. And then, of course, the responsibility is when you do take things on, you got to think about the people that you hire and how you affect their lives. Yeah. You know, it's not yeah. just yourself. Yeah. Needless to say, the dot-com went dot-gone, and uh, and I was <laughs> <laughs> back at square one. <laughs> yeah. So you're back at square one, and it's almost like, yeah. you're like, shit, I, just, I took this damn risk, and look where I am now. Yeah, like, how did it be? So you're now a multimillionaire, and you're, you went through these fumbles and these stumbles, and you grew, and you did amazing, and then, like, you took this risk, and it's like... Oh, and then I, like, <laughs> totally, like, crashed and burned, and then I was like, okay, well, no big deal. I'll just go out and get another merchandising job. I'm, like, the queen yeah. of merchandising, right? So yeah. with yeah. my resume, people would, you know, love to have me. Well, that wasn't the case because... As you know, I um, actually did not finish high school. I, Like I said, I yeah. emancipated at 15, meaning that I finished yeah. 10th grade, and I didn't graduate from high school, and I don't have a college degree. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, that really, really hurt me uh, over and over again, and it still does. I, it's still yeah. like I, I'm probably a, you know, just a sore spot for me because um, I didn't have the opportunity to um, – go to school and work and do all the things that I, I needed yeah. to do. Um, so I so I don't have that um, college education. I don't have those skills. And it's really important. It's really important. But but it doesn't mean that you can just be a, a lifetime student and just because yeah. you get an MBA doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden you're going to come out and you're going to be like the smartest business person and you're going to be rich. That's, yeah. you know, you got to, you got to yeah. like balance the whole thing. My God. Yeah. You, know? yeah. you got to put in the time. You, got, yeah. you have to put in the time. That's and everyone has to pay their dues. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So then, you know, you went through all of that. And you, you say that you're a survivor. I think that's like the biggest thing that I get out of your story is that you're a survivor. So how did you survive this tumble? Is it going through, you know, having issues, trying to apply for jobs? So was that that turning point where, like, screw it, I'm just going to figure it out on my own and decide to try to develop um, this idea of your first business? Yeah, I mean, it was me, my dad, my two brothers were all living in an apartment in Santa Monica, and I was out hustling trying to get jobs, and I, you know, applied for positions, and, you know, I applied for, like, a merchandising position. I got offered, like, an assistant manager position. I was like, what the, oh, my God, this is, I'm not doing that. And so it was really humiliating when I realized, hey, you know what, because of my educational 
background or lack thereof, I'm not even considered for things that I should be, that I'm much more qualified to do. But, oh well, so, you know, too bad. That was your choice. You know, you didn't go to school, and now you have to figure out another way to make it. So working with my experience and really coming to it, I've always been an idea person. I could walk into, like, a bookstore, oh, they should do this, they should do that, I would do this. And I'll walk (laughs) anywhere, and I'm always thinking of, oh, they should do this, they should do that, they should do this. So why don't I just shut up and put my money where my mouth is? It's kind of what I thought and said, I have an idea. I took everything that I had, cashed out my 401K. I had about six months of of money to cover my rent and bills. And it was a really high risk because that's not a lot. (laughs) And then came up with this idea to create foot pedals, these little cushions that make women's high heels more comfortable. And the reason I thought about it was because I lived in New York after growing up in California, but because my feet have always been sensitive from the burn accident, I really wanted to make designer cushions that blended in with designer shoes. Yeah. And I got a hold of my friend Margie. She had been out in California for an event, and um, I showed it to her. Now, remember, Margie is my best friend that I met at BCBG that was in charge of international sales. And she, I said, hey, look, I got this idea. What do you think? If I make it, could you sell it? Because believe it or not, I do not sell. I'm a really bad salesperson. I I get my feelings hurt, and I blow the deal, and I get all nervous, and I can't ask for a purchase order. It's just you know, it's just horrible. Yeah. So yeah. she said, let me check it out. And she shopped it around to a few buyers and things. She called me back and she goes, listen, I really think you got something here. Let's go for it. Long story short, she quit her job. We came, we went all in with everything we had and grew the business from an idea out of my dining room into uh, $10 million in annual sales, global business wow. in over 60 countries. And we sold the company in 2011 for $14 million. Wow. wow. And now we're starting our next company. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you released the first book, right, you know, yes. without giving away too much. And I know a lot of it is about, you know, the stuff that we're talking about now, about your, your life story. Um, but what else can listeners expect when they pick up from Stilettos to the Stock Exchange? Well, I would say, I mean, not to sound like a cliche, but don't judge a book by its cover. I think when people look at me and they see, you know, a polished, you know, professional woman that carries herself well, they automatically assume, oh, she's, you know, a business owner. She must have got a lot of money from her dad or she must have a rich Mm -hmm. husband. And that certainly is not the case. Um, So I think that that's kind of interesting to see coming from every possible thing that you could have thrown at you. You know, and then getting like yeah. two steps forward, but having getting t- knocked ten steps back time and time again. I think that it, you can be inspired to go and pursue your dream, and um, you know, and then just and just be a good person and have yeah. and you know have faith and and if you can't help others, you know, with with monetary in monetary ways, there's other ways to help people, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think what you release in that book, you know, like the business things that you've learned and your philosophies and things like that are very, like, outside of what you're doing for, you know, the the 210 Footwear Foundation mm-hmm. aspect of the book, which we'll get to in a little bit, too. Um, I think your philosophy that you share in there is basically, like, 
business school summed up in some really, you know, two really good chapters. And I think a lot of people can learn from your succinct, you know, succinct storytelling and your business philosophies. And I think that's, that's helping too, you know. And um, so obviously you faced so many difficulties growing up, yet it seems as if, like, you pushed in the complete opposite direction of a lot of the hardships that your family faced. What do you, you know, what do you think allowed you to keep your head on straight? And why do you think that you didn't allow yourself to become a victim of circumstance? In my formative years, my parents were good at heart yeah. and smart and yeah. um, faith was a part of uh, my upbringing. You know, my father, you know, took us to church and yeah. so that was part of it. But I think um, one of the biggest things was that in, at certain times, I, I mean, I, I have visited so many of my relatives in and out of prison. I've, I just thought it was what everybody did, you know. Oh, yeah. you know, Johnny's yeah. locked up, locked up right now. Oh, you know, this guy's yeah. locked up right now. When's he getting out? I just thought it was a normal thing. And then later, come to find out, yeah. geez, like, yep, taking a weekend <laughs> drive to go see Seal at you know Danville. State yeah, I did. Three hours away. I know how to talk on those phones and, you know, the glass and all the things you're supposed to do. Like, we just thought it was normal. So, yeah. In when people started getting older and there were funerals, and at my own yeah. grandfather's funeral, my father couldn't attend because he was a wanted man in California. Yeah. So I had to go to my own grandfather's funeral at 13 years old alone. Um, you know, my my mom and other people, but at the time I lived with my father in Arizona. Yeah. And there were federal agents there. There were cops surrounding my aunt's house after, during the funeral, at, you know, the cemetery. And I was like, what is going on? And it really occurred to me that we were a notorious name. It was a notorious family. And I just really, as I got older, I decided I was going to change that. I wanted all that to be something that was recognizable, but not for those reasons. Yeah. And and so what I'm trying to do is build a legacy that the future generations of the Aldats family will have something to be proud of. So and that's really what made me not want to be a victim of my circumstances. I just wanted to break the cycle and change yeah. it. And I think that's really important to that idea of breaking the cycle. You know, we fall victim a lot to, you know, our past circumstances and I think just putting your mind in that mode where you realize, no, we don't have to be this way or our life doesn't have to be this way, and actually making the conscious decision to actually change and and go in a different direction and work hard to make that happen, I think is so important to young people. Well, yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, yeah. I sh- you know, I should be a chola living in East L.A. right now with, like, six kids, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if that's yeah. really, if that was, if I was going to yeah. continue the way that we've been going. But yeah. thankfully, um, you know, I just decided to change it and also provide opportunities to my younger yeah. siblings so that, you know, they could choose their path and as well. And it's And so far it's worked. Um, very, very well. My youngest brother just graduated from UCLA with a awesome. biz econ degree and is, uh, got his first job in New York City. Um, so that's pretty exciting. He's the first man never to go to prison, first man to graduate high school, first yeah. man to uh, go to a university. So yeah. it's pretty exciting. Yeah. 
I love it. That's awesome. That's how my little brother is. And he's actually, he's a first-year cop now. So I I think us being surrounded by police officers coming from yeah. the disputes all the time, like, inspired him to be the one who's like, I want to be that person helping. Yeah, see, kids. that's really good nope. because then he can have empathy. Yep, exactly, exactly. Uh, it's a known fact that Latinas and minorities face incredibly marked disadvantages in the workplace and in the job market. Why do you think we're still facing these issues, even in 2015? And what do you think young Latinas can do to protect themselves and support one another and really shine in the workforce? Well, I know for sure that there's one thing that we as Latinas uh, have a habit of doing, and one of the issues is that we are taught to be extremely humble people. Mm -hmm. And not only the men, the men are to be prideful and strong, Mm -hmm. but the women are to be quiet and, you know, submissive. So it's Mm -hmm. very uh, counterintuitive when you're actually working in the job place because in our culture, pride and hard work is very important. And we don't toot our own horn. We don't, you know, we're not showy and flashy and and really, you know, saying, oh, I'm the best at this. I'm so good at that, you you know. But in the workplace, you have to market yourself for whatever it is that you want to do in your career. And I think other cultures really understand that and they, you know, grow from it and and their careers – you know, you can move up three times faster if you're really promoting yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times I think we just kind of sit back and wait for the promotion to come to us, and that's not going to happen. Absolutely. And knowing your worth, too, I feel a lot of times women find it hard to ask for a raise. Or oh, find yeah. Or find it hard to say, I deserve a promotion. Yeah. That's right. And because, and I think we also take on a lot more work, and we, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, we're passionate people. So, be passionate, but also make sure that you are recognized for your work and that you point it out and that you, you know, do a quarterly evaluation, self-evaluate, do a performance review on yourself, see, you know, and check in frequently with management and see, and then ask, what other opportunities are available? Is there anything that I could do? My ultimate goal is no one can help you get where you want to go unless you actually say where you intend to get how you you know intend to get there or where you want to be, so yeah. you're we are our own worst enemies in that aspect. Meaning that you know you just go to work, punch in at the clock, you know, and then leave at the end of the day. But really, you know, you could be the master of a certain thing and master skills, and then actually teach other people and move into upper management positions. And I think that a lot of that happens not only in the workforce, but also culturally, being mm-hmm. humble is one. And then secondly, sometimes I think that we work our way up and we get we get into management positions and then all of a sudden we get married. And mm-hmm. once I know when I was married, it was a very, very difficult um, pill for my ex-husband, obviously it didn't work out, mm-hmm. to swallow that I made more money than him. And it just, I'll tell you, it is a tough thing, and you've got to realize that that's going to be the case. Even for me, it was hard. I was like, I was the one that, you know, made more. At first, when we got married, I didn't make more money. He did, so everything was great. But then all of a sudden, I started making more money, and and I almost 
got sucked into our, our culture and upbringing too, getting mad that he didn't make more money than me. And then, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's like a yeah. catch-22, you know. Yeah. But I'll tell you, even now, I'd never hardly get asked out on dates. I rarely, you know, um, and and then when I say, hey, do you know anybody you could set me up with? I'm single. And, and they're like, oh, well, guys just don't like, you know, successful women. I'm like, mm. wow, that sucks. Yeah. I can't believe that I, you're saying that. Oh, my gosh. I think, I think part of it is intimidation. But I think the other part of it is you just have to find the right kind of guy, too. Like I'm really right. lucky. I went through a divorce as well, and I, it's just right. a matter of finding that kind of man who's just enamored and supportive and exactly. believes in what you're doing. And I, I know there's, they're hard to find. There's few and far between. Well, I mean, it's just a matter of <laughs> finding somebody that's really confident and, um, yeah. you know, yeah. and secure, you know. And exactly. that's the cool thing if you if you can find that. So, exactly. you know, just got to, again, you got to put it out there. So. Yep, yep. So you mentioned in the opening of your book that you kind of battled going back and forth on whether or not you wanted to write it. You mentioned mm-hmm. that, you know, one of the reasons behind that was because in order to do so and keep it real that you'd have to share the good along with the bad. Why do you feel Latinos share, like, shy away from the idea of airing out our dirty laundry, so to speak, what helped you overcome that whole fear of sharing the harsh reality of the life you grew up in and how it led to, you know, your ultimate success? Well, two words, Latino pride. (laughs) (laughs) It is a very real thing. Um, When you air your dirty laundry, you're airing your entire family uh, in the way that we see things in our culture. Um, So that is... One of the things that I really battled with, um, because I don't, I never, my both of my parents are deceased now, and yeah. I didn't want to say, speak ill of them, but yeah. at the same time, I also needed to explain how and why I got to the place that I did, yeah. and what helped me really overcome my fear of sharing it, um, the whole story of how I grew up and how it, how I, you know, got to this point in my career is because I was invited to speak at a foster home. And it was the first time I I went there, and I was going to just talk about being a businesswoman. But as I got into it, I started getting questions, and I ended up sharing my entire life story. And the, the time that I ended up staying after, because all the kids wanted to come up and shake my hand and talk to me and hug me and take a picture with me and you know, mothers were there, you know, it was women and children there that were crying and saying, listen, thank you. You made yeah. me feel like like I could do anything, you know. And yeah. I said, oh, well, we can. We can do anything. It doesn't matter. I go, what's the worst that can happen, really? At the end of the day, sharing your story isn't, it's nothing. I didn't do anything that I have to be ashamed of. I just yeah. was born into a situation and I chose what path to take. That's all. Yeah. I didn't. I'm not sitting there going, oh, I was a rich kid that was, you know, I drank too much and, you know, I didn't yeah. do all that stuff. It was a whole other set of circumstances. Look, man, I just was born, I showed up, and this was the, the card, I, this was the hand I was dealt. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to find, you'll, you know, in in my book, it's it's quite humorous as well. I'm sure you yeah. probably cracked up because I'm cracking up the whole ass. entire time. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. Really <laughs> Like, uh-huh. like, just stop, like, ugly stopping. And I'm yeah. 
Like, yeah. What so. are you doing to me? I don't even know you. And I'm like, I'm so connected to your story. That's so funny. Yeah, well, that was, I think that being relatable and yeah. seeing that I actually could inspire um, women and kids and entrepreneurs and Hispanics, yeah. that I felt a social responsibility to go ahead and um, get out there and, and do what I could. You know, be a yeah. part of our community. And then yeah. um, mentor. Um, mentoring is really important to me. I helped start the Hispanic 100 Mentoring Program here. Yeah. Um, it's three years into the program now, and that's really um, been an exciting endeavor for me. Wow. Absolutely. I think you, you know, you touched on one thing. Being a mentor, connecting with people, your story almost makes people feel like, especially people who come from those types of circumstances, mm-hmm. feel like they're not alone and that they have they have other options. Um, as someone with a very similar upbringing to you, I, mm-hmm. I feel like I find it hard to find mentors who understand that whole plight that I face throughout my career and my life. What kind mm-hmm. of advice would you give young people who are hoping to connect with a mentor um, and obviously, you say, you say mentorship is very important. You launch this program for mentors, um, but how could you know people go about getting involved in things like that in your area and in other areas as well? Um, I'll tell you, it can start as as young as five years old. And now that I see all of the opportunities that are out there, there are more opportunities than in history available to women, Hispanics, and young adults than ever before. So, I mean, programs that are privately funded have high, high success rates. And the reason why I I really um, talk about this and I feel so strongly about it is because having to live on food stamps and HUD housing and welfare and, you know, Medi-Cal and all that stuff when we were growing up, it was very difficult um, and shameful, but I also felt that there are certain things that the government just isn't good at. And yeah. when you get more involved in privately funded things, you find people that are passionate, serious, mm-hmm. and results-oriented. For example, there's a great nonprofit called Girls Incorporated, and mm-hmm. it's a national organization that teaches girls to be strong, smart, and bold, I sat on the board of directors for two years, and, you know, that right there already, if you have one in, in your community, I highly, highly recommend that you get your girls in those programs. It's an okay. after-school program. And then as we get older, um, you know, joining, getting um, into clubs in schools such as, you know, there's all kinds of um, Latino business student associations, there's... Mm-hmm. Um, anything that has to do with the field, but also as a part of our culture, you're going to find successful mentors able to give their time. Um, There's another wonderful organization that I don't think a lot of people are familiar with, and it's called SCORE, S-C-O-R-E. And these are retired, high-level executives that do nothing but give their time to our community and help write business plans. I mean, it is an amazing organization, and there are so many out there. Um, Another one I can say is Step Up Women's Network. That's Mm -hmm. another great one. So really, 
get out there. You've got to network because it's not about what you know. It's about who you know. know, And building relationships, I think, is one of the most important things that I ever learned from my mentor. Um, And, and, you know, networking, building relationships, and then getting that – those contacts and, and building your reputation is so important. You mentioned, you know, you didn't finish high school, you didn't go to college. Um, so what are your thoughts then on higher education for Latinos? Um, are you a proponent for it? And do you believe that it's necessary in today's economic times? I feel like you see in the news, you know, people like, oh, college is so expensive today. You know, people can learn things online or they can do this or they can do that. And I see a lot of people, you know, kind of not bashing, but talking down the idea of going to college. And I, I almost see that as like a catch-22. Like, let's tell minorities and Latinos and people who don't have enough money to not go to school. And I'm I'm an advocate for education outside of what I do here at Hashtag. I'm a professor um, and I teach in the business and marketing department at a local community college and in the fashion department at the Illinois Institute of Art. And I almost feel like, why would we do that to these young people? I mean, not that you necessarily always need a college degree, but I think education and learning is so important. What are your thoughts on that? I think that education is the single most important thing that we could ever do for ourselves and our families, our children, for our future of our and our country. Um, no matter how much it costs, there are so many <clears throat> programs and help. If you're a citizen of the United States, you don't have to have a big fancy education. There's all kinds of things that you can do. And not everybody is meant to be a multimillionaire, bazillionaire, you know, entrepreneur. You have to have all kinds of people in the world. And I think where our country is faltering is developing yeah. hard skills. I mean, yeah. we need mechanics, we need engineers, yeah. we need real people with real skills because otherwise we're just going to continue to farm these these um, jobs out to other countries mm-hmm. and we'll just be consumers um, and we're really, we're really hurting ourselves. So my feeling about education is maximize your opportunity, mm-hmm. do whatever it takes to to learn as much as you can and to obtain the skills and the knowledge that you can in order to make yourself a competitive person in the workplace, but also um, in our country. We have to have movers and shakers, but we've also got to have the people that, I'm not saying you have to go out and get an MBA. That's yeah. just not for everyone. Not yeah. everybody's going to be you know, a professor like you or you know, yeah. not everyone's going to be an entrepreneur like me. But I'll tell you, we are always going to have land, there's always going to be construction, there's always going to be machines that have to be run, there's going to be, you know, skills, dairies, there's farming, there's so many things in this country that we have to learn. So I think, you know, if you don't have a lot of money for higher education, then, you know, go and and get really good skills, learn to be a carpenter, a painter, whatever those things are, and do it well, and then continue adult education is very important. I mean, I single day and one of my life goals is to actually go back and obtain a degree at some point. I feel like you're never too old to go back to school and, and I love that. Like the community college I teach at IT, everyone's straight from students who are just out of high school to, you know, 
50-year-old, 60-year-old women who are coming yeah. in to learn a new skill set. And I mean, that inspires me exactly. Like, that's why, you know, when I'm grading at 2 o'clock in the morning after doing emails from my small businesses, and it keeps me going because I know that there are people out there who believe that this can help them and they can grow. And I think it's never too late to go back to school. So oh, my God, it's awesome so true. List. <laughs> Agree with you a thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about the whole connection you have with the Two Times Footwear Foundation? And obviously, we know you you say you know you're a proponent for giving back to the community. But um, can you tell us why you feel it's so important? Well, <clears throat> this is my philosophy. It's very simple, and I think that if everyone did this in our country, we would be so much stronger with with our infrastructure. So my thought is first help yourself, so get yourself and your house in order. Then help your family, okay? And that's very important because I think a lot of people have such a tendency to argue or fight with your family and then you just kind of forget or you kind of put them on the back burner. Oh, that's the black sheep yeah. of the family. Well, he's not going to, we're not going to help him, but I'm the rich sister, you know. That's just not yeah. the way I think we're helping this world. So yeah. first help yourself, then help your family, then when you're in a position to do so, step out and re- and help your community. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a three-prong approach. Um, in the footwear industry, which is what foot pedals fell under, yeah. it was so important to me to, to give back to that organization. The, the foot, 210 Footwear Foundation is, the, is an organization that is shoe people, that helps mm-hmm. shoe people. So if you're a yeah. child of a guy that sells shoes at Nordstrom, you qualify to get scholarships, wow. assistance if you can't pay your bills in during Katrina. There were so many people, you know, that needed help and the 210 Footwear Foundation specifically helps people. Wow. If someone has cancer or sick or loses their job and they can't pay their rent, like we help each other. So I, I like that because it felt like a family to me. But yeah. what I did was um, we actually set up an endowment fund, meaning it never, it never goes away and people can always contribute to it. And I specifically earmarked those dollars to help women with education or domestic violence situations. Mm-hmm. So you can always you know, decide where you specifically want your money to go. And that, again, goes back to a privately funded organization that has, you know, initiatives and success rates. But you can, you're not just giving the money to the government and then they choose who they're going to help and give out welfare to, you know, thousands of people that don't deserve it. It's actually, you know, money where you're choosing where it goes and you can specify. Yeah. So I like, I like privately funded organizations with a purpose because I like to see results exactly yeah I feel like you know your whole launch with savvy travelers I think that's really important because it's where you're going today Mm -hmm. Um, so can you share a little bit about savvy travelers what it's about you know who is catering to and what you're trying to do with it Oh, sure. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. We, Margie and I are my best friend, again. We were kind of, after we sold foot pedals, we were like, oh, my God, now what are we going to do? So I kind of went out and did a bunch of um, community work and took some time off, and we started consulting with people and 
people were asking us if you know, could, will you just give us advice? We were kind of, so we were kind of like pretending like we were our own little Shark Tank, but then yeah. um, <clears throat> we kept getting frustrated and with. Sometimes Margie would be like, oh, God, I've got some advice. Close up shop. You're never going to make it. Like, <laughs> so we were getting, you know, we were, we were, we were just like thinking, ah, this isn't really for us. We're not, we're not teachers. Who are we trying to kid? So long story short, we were still, um, I, was, I was traveling and Margie had this idea a long time ago for this mouth wipe, this little dental wipe. And, mm-hmm. um, Long story short, I met a guy that worked within the air the airline industry, mm-hmm. and he was talking about all the germs and everything that happens on airplanes, and he had show, talked about how he would bring these big Lysol wipes on the plane with him, and I was like, oh, my God. As we started getting further and further into it, eventually came Savvy Travelers, the new company that Margie and I uh, just launched in 2015, um, and it's a collection of individually wrapped luxury towelettes for your eyeglasses. Um, we have one, like one for glasses and your iPhone. You know how makeup gets like all over your your iPhone, and that's bacteria, so it makes your face break out. We have one that cleans your lenses and cleans your phones and your tablets and your screens. We have one that's for teeth, like you actually can wipe all the like red wine or coffee off your yeah. teeth. Yeah. <laughs> and, yep. and, uh we have one that's an antiperspirant and deodorant wipe that's crystal clear. Uh we have a facial cleanser, we have antibacterial surface wipes because and then antibacterial hand and body wipes. And yeah. the list goes on and on. We're just continuing to expand and I'm the really excited Don't because forget the flashlight. Yeah, and we have a, oh, my God, of course. Well, I'm a little bit of an OCD germaphobe, so (laughs) I wanted to get this black light that you can shine, like, anywhere. And when I shine it in, like, hotels, I see where, you know, the housekeepers missed or maybe somebody, you know, was aiming for the toilet and they missed. And (laughs) so um, you can wipe down things like light switches door panels, you know, remote controls and telephones, things that in this day and age, everything's so fast-paced. The cleaning crews don't have the time, nor are they required to wipe down certain areas and and airplane seats. That's why all the, like, Ebola and MRSA and all those things were happening is because you're touching hard surfaces. Somebody wipes their snotty nose and then, you know, rubs the the seat, I mean the um, armrest on the chair, or the tray table on the airplane, and then that virus or bacteria can live for, you know, 14 hours. And then the next passenger gets on, you know, buckles up, and boom, they just caught it. So it's really important to be smart, simple, and safe. And then the other thing was that we wanted everything in these little um, packets, individually wrapped Mm -hmm. wipes, because they're not considered liquid. So our goal is to get through the airport with, without ever having to check a bag. Yeah. And this cuts out all the liquids that we kept getting, like, taken away. Absolutely. <laughs> and you just throw them right in your purse. They're so tiny and convenient. Yeah. It's just such a simple way to just keep yourself safe and clean and germ-free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we're in Nordstrom right now. I'm really excited in the cosmetics department. Okay. Um, only $10 a pack of all of the different varieties. And um, it's like a great stocking stuffer. Absolutely. And are, can they purchase online as well? 
Oh, yeah. Um, our website is SavvyTravelers.com. And SavvyTravelers.com, you know, just kind of gives you all kinds of, like, interesting germ facts and all kinds of stuff, too, that you wouldn't – and packing tips and all kinds of, like, cool things. Oh, that's awesome. So we are down to my last two questions, the first of which is a little bit of advice. You know, you seem like you're an amazing mentor. What kind of advice would you give people, whether they be young or old or whatever, who might be interested in launching their own business? Well, the first thing I would say, the advice, if you're thinking about launching your own business, just remember that you have to ask yourself, what's the absolute worst that can happen? And mm-hmm. what's the absolute worst that can happen? Okay, you lose all your money and maybe all your investors' money or, you know. Mm-hmm. Can you stomach that? Are you willing to take that risk? Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up super poor, so I'm really good at it. It doesn't scare me to be poor. I'm actually like a professional poor person. So <laughs> 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 I, I'm, I, I know that if I lost everything, I'll just make it back again. I don't have yeah. that fear, you know. Um, then the other thing is is have a plan. Um, you know, start with the end in mind. I know a lot of people say that, but it really mm-hmm. is important. And know the the whole plan. I think creatively entrepreneurs know what their vision is, but the accounting, the financial, the you know, how long is it going to take you in order to to make money? What do you have to do in order to get it? So, in my book. Um, from Stilettos to the Stock Exchange, I break it down into a three-step business plan. Mm -hmm. So it's money, marketing, and management, the three M's, and it is this formula for success. Um, So if you don't know how to write a business plan, that's what a business plan is, and um, that's what I like to share with with anyone that's considering it. Finally, where can we learn more about you, uh, your, your brands, and your book? SavvyTravelers.com. We're um, everywhere. So we're, mm-hmm. our company is, um, has our bios there. You can purchase my book. Um, you can see all the latest and greatest news. But, yes, S-A-V-V-Y-T-R-A-V-E-L-E-R-S.com, SavvyTravelers.com. Okay. Are you guys on social media at all? Oh, yeah, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're everywhere. Thank you, Tina. I really, really appreciate you sharing your story with me and with the listeners, uh, your inspiration. Thank you, Jen, so much. And if there's ever anything we can do, please don't hesitate to ask. It was great speaking with you. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of Half Stack Highlights. If you're interested in learning more about Tina, you can visit her online at www.savvytravelers.com. And you can also link up with her on Twitter at Savvy Travelers. You can visit her on Instagram at T-A-L-D-A-T-Z, that's T-A-L-D-A-T-Z, and you can follow her public page on Facebook. While you're online, make sure you visit us at halfstackmag.com, and you can keep up with us on social, all at Halfstack Mag. Thanks for listening.